and welcome to the Metacast by Novik, a podcast in which we explore the business and future of video games. I'm Aaron Bush, and in this episode, I'm excited to host a conversation with Bjorn Jeffrey. Bjorn is a serial entrepreneur, perhaps best known for the kids' media company, Toka Boca, and is currently an active board member, including at Rovio, technology columnist, and advisor for all things digital strategy and consumer culture. Bjorn, welcome to the Metacast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So obviously, you're a well-accomplished guy, and there's so much that we could dig into today. But before we dive into anything specific, I'd love to just give you a chance to tell your story as you would like it to be told. Um, so maybe to kick things off, what originally drew you to entrepreneurship? And as you, you look back over what you've accomplished so far, what do you view as the highlights of your career? It's a tricky question, but uh, yeah, I started a lot of companies. I started my first company when I was 16. Um, more some sort of party outlet than a company, maybe. You know, We wrapped it in a company format, but I think realistically it was more about going out, having fun, and having some sort of brand to do that with. Um, I'd say, you know, the highlights, I mean, I'd argue that maybe the lowlights taught me more about entrepreneurship than anything else. Like a lot of the companies that I ran and projects were complete failures and utter failures and were quite difficult to manage. Um, and at the time, it's very difficult to see any sort of sense or meaning in having to, you know, fire staff or cancel projects or whatever it may be. Um, in retrospect, exactly quite useful. Uh, and it, and it really does, you know, there is an element of incremental learning. So I think maybe some of the, some of the failures that I did have actually been the most useful. So yeah, but otherwise I'd describe myself as a, yeah, an entrepreneur and a, a person interested in sort of media and, and culture in general. And that's sort of the areas where I've started things, everything from fashion blogs to record labels to agencies and, and, and a little bit of gaming that we're going to talk about more today. Right. And we'll also talk more about the kids market later. Um, but I know you've you've kind of had a bent in that direction across your career as well. Um, why is that? Why have you um, been oftentimes pretty focused on and have come back to that kids market? It's a it's very underestimated, uh, misunderstood and underestimated. I think that's that's how I feel about it. At least it, it's been something that I think adults take for granted. Um, you know, you a, a lot of pro products for children, whether it be media or, or, or otherwise, come up from the parents thinking, what would I like if I was a child? And that is the fundamental wrong way of approaching it. And it, it's very tricky to think like a child. You have to go to the source. Uh, and I think early in my career, I was uh, an editor for uh, children's journalism. And, and the way in which they did it was not adults writing for kids. It was kids writing for kids because it was impossible to know what on earth do these kids want us to write about so it doesn't, you know, turn into these sort of Steve Buscemi meme-like uh, hello fellow kids sort of situation? Uh, it's you've got to go to the source. You've got to talk to kids themselves because they know what's relevant for them and they know what they want to talk about. So letting them have a voice was useful. Uh, creating Tokoaka was actually quite similar. You know, you just go to the source and try to figure out what do kids actually want as opposed to what do adults think that children want, which is a quite a different very different question with a very different outcome. Right. I, I kind of want to double click into that before moving on, actually. Could you just talk a bit more about what is misunderstood about this market more generally, and maybe a bit more about like, what does it really take to serve kids differently from adults that people don't really understand? <laughs> 
I think the misunderstanding part is partly commercial. I think like there's no money in kids, especially in kids gaming. Kids gaming has quite a bad reputation, I'd say, within within the gaming sphere. It's not something which is really, I don't know, even sometimes even considered to be part of the gaming industry. Uh, and I think that's it lives somewhere in between education, technology. Uh, games, certain media, somewhere there, it lives in those sort of the, 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 I don't know, the crossroads of those four things, I suppose. That's where sort of the kids' media is. But it's not sufficiently strong in either of them. So gaming companies don't consider kids' gaming to be gaming. Media considers kids' media to be a very particular subset of media, not real media, mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. So it's very, very similar. You could argue that publishing is in there too, and that kids' publishing is a completely different uh, sort of niche than, than regular publishing. It has quite little to do with, with one another in certain ways. And the way in which you need to think about it, I think, is, is there are actually a lot of, you know, from the, the business point of view, a lot of advantages that you overlook. Like, yes, it's difficult making products for children, for sure. Uh, you can't go to yourself. Uh, and if you do, you tend to mess it up. On the other hand, there's longevity in children's products. Um, you know, a good children's book, you could sell it for 100 years. Uh, you know, a good kid's game could be used over and over again for new kids that turn, you know, they turn three, they turn four, they turn five. But a five-year-old now and a five-year-old 10 years ago, surprisingly similar. A 30-year-old now and a 30-year-old ten, five to 10 years ago has very different expectations. So much more has changed and the cultural impact of who you are, same thing goes across geographies. If you take a, a five-year-old from Saudi Arabia, a five-year-old from China, and a five-year-old from Sweden, you know, put them in the room, they're not going to understand what they're saying, but they're going to get along. It's going to work out because five-year-olds are five-year-olds. They're very similar. 35-year-olds, not so much. You know, they could be very, very different. You have a completely different cultural context. You're coming from different places. Uh, and you're seeing the world in, in, in very different ways based on, on you know, culture, heritage, upbringing, all manner of things, philosophy, maybe. Um, so while making sort of what, whatever was good for an adult five years ago is most likely not good for adults right now. Whereas for kids, it's the opposite. A great game five years ago is probably still great. And uh, so that is a huge advantage, which is very under leveraged when it comes to making products for children. Once you get it right, you have long-term returns and rewards on that. And that's not necessarily something that you see with a few exceptions in, in, in regular gaming. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting and, and well said. And I want to talk a bit more about that, but maybe, maybe before we dive too deep, um, I think it would be good to introduce Tokoboka um, specifically. Um, so maybe to, to set the scene, could you give us more context around that company? How did it start? What was its mission? What did it do when you ran it? That kind of thing. Sure. So I I started it together with uh, my co-founder, Emil Uvemar. Uh, we worked together at a large media company in Stockholm. Um, and we were working for the research and development team. This is a very traditional publisher. They've been around 200 years, uh, family-owned, seventh generation. Um, you know, traditional, they do books, newspapers, television, cinema. A traditional sort of media conglomerate kind of idea. Right. So we worked for the R&D team and the idea was come up with, you know, the next thing, you know, which is a very ungrateful, <laughs> quite daunting and almost impossible task to do. Um, but one of the projects that we're working on at the time that we're talking now, 2008, 2007, 2008, somewhere there, um, was there's a rumor that there was going to be a large iPhone entering the market. 
Um, and this, of course, was an iPad, but we didn't know that at the time. And this company that I worked for, the Bonnier Group, they had a lot of magazine assets, like loads of magazines. At the time, about 60 magazines, even in the US, things like titles like Popular Science, Parenting Magazine, all manner of things. Uh, and then magazines throughout the Nordics and, and Scandinavia. Um, so the idea was like, okay, if there's a big iPhone coming, wouldn't it be great if we just took the magazines and we put them on top of here? You know, if we just basically turned this into a digital magazine reader. Um, and this is sort of a classic case of inside out innovation in a way. It's like, we have this asset and this technology is coming along. This is a perfect match. If everybody would just do what we'd like it, what, what, what we'd like them to do, what we'd want them to do, this would be a great business. Suddenly we can sell digital magazines. We'll save on print. We'll save on distribution. It'll be all it'll be super great. So we did this project. Um, and we turned it, you know, we made a, a concept video, something called Mag Plus. And that actually still to this day looks pretty cool. But it was a concept video. It was, a, it was an idea, like, what could this be? The underlying sort of principle behind it, which we got wrong, I think, was there was no consumer demand for this. Like, no one really wanted this. The, the, we'd had to teach everyone to say, like, okay, so now you've got to buy this iPad that you don't have which is very mm. expensive. And you're going to use this in a way which you never thought that you would use it to do something that you're quite happy doing already, but in print. Because magazines have you know, not been in the same decline as newspapers. People like that magazines, generally speaking. So we were trying to design something for a use case, which arguably was not really there. So after we left that project, Emil and I, um, we weren't the only ones working on it, of course, but we were part of the, that project. We sort of started in the other end. As like, okay, well, if we started with the consumer behavior instead, what is already happening, which is not being addressed, as opposed to trying to convince people to do something that they're not doing. And that, that led us to sort of, was a report from Sesame Street's think tank, the Joan Gans Cooney Center, uh, referencing something called the pass back effect. The pass back effect is parents passing back their devices to the kids in the backseat of the car. Now today, this is super obvious. Like this is a long time ago. Like, of course, everybody does this. All kids have iPads, but this was not the case at the time. The, the, the consumer insight that was different was suddenly children have access to disproportionately good devices, handheld devices made out of glass that cost five to a thousand, uh, 500 to a thousand dollars. Um, and suddenly they're using them to play with, which seems completely unreasonable. If you would try to pitch that to someone, it's like, you should buy this glass device for, for a thousand bucks and give it to a three-year-old. <laughs> like, who would do that? But yeah. everyone is doing that. Yep. So that was, that was completely new. So that we sort of started it in that angle and said, okay, so if the behavior is already there, how do we design a product on the basis of the behavior? And that's kind of how it started. And then we sort of started, you know, finding different ways in. But that was sort of the, the foundation to where it came from. Mm -hmm. And what was the the product or the evolution? Well, the product, of it? yeah, the product was partly a an overarching brand, a branded approach, which is very common if you look at the product category that we were trying to emulate, which was not games but actually toys. Mm -hmm. So our whole thing was like we should make digital toys. We should make things that are open ended, things that don't you can't necessarily win or lose. It's like a frisbee or Lego, like you can't win at Lego. You can have a Lego competition, if you will, but the point of Lego is more like the joy of creation and you're building it in whatever way you want to. You can be very prescriptive or you can be very free, but you build it in whatever way you want to. And that's what makes it a toy. 
Whereas gaming has sort of levels, rules, it has a sort of set idea. You know, there's more, now there's more kind of sandpit oriented or sandbox oriented um, products um, that you can play in that way. But generally speaking, I'd say gaming is relatively prescriptive. This is what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and, and our take was like, I think gaming um, has its place, but toys is such a universal thing that never seems to have changed. It just hasn't been really applied in the screen context. So what if we tried to make digital toys with the same essence? And if you look at toy brands, that's very common. You know, you have Barbies, you have yeah, Lego, all of these sorts of things. Very, very strong brands on a product level and on a toy level. So we're thinking, okay, we should try to emulate this and do something quite similar. And this is how we came up with Tokaboka, which originally was called Rainbow Teeth, which is a terrible name. <laughs> um, because of the, the, for those who haven't seen the logo, it's a happy face with sort of primary color teeth. Um, luckily, Rainbow Teeth does, did not pass through the lawyer filter because okay. uh, it, the rainbow is owned by Rainbow Six, which is a Ubisoft game. <laughs> so luckily, <laughs> that didn't work. So we had to get rid of that. And then we chose um, Toca Boca is actually Spanish. So Toca la Boca means touch the mouth. And the logo is a big smiley mouth. So some, some, one of our early ideas was like, okay, you play like a little mini game. You got to touch the mouth before you do it. But also like, it sounds funny. Tokaboka sounds funny. Relatively easy to pronounce. Relatively easy to spell. We could get the .com domain, you know. And so that's what we did. And then we were off to the races. Nice. Yeah, that is a, that is a fun name. Um, when I was studying it, I, I thought it was interesting how you took a, like a multi-app strategy you know some companies might try to shove everything in in one super app others take a more distributed approach could you talk a bit about why you took the approach you did and like what that looked like in practice yeah um i think that it's an it's two things i think partly it's an effect of of the digital toy strategy it's a sort of like toys are singular experiences we're trying to emulate certain play patterns that suited you know, a digital product very well. Certain, certain ways of playing, yeah, you know, like uh, playing catch or something like that is super hard. Like it's not going to be fun on an iPad. The whole point is, you know, is kinesthetics. You're feeling things, you're throwing things, you're catching things. Doing that with an iPad doesn't really work. Whereas like make believe works super well, like a dollhouse that works very, very well in this context. So these singular approaches is like, this is the dollhouse app, and this is the make-believe app, or this is the creative app, and these sorts of things, is more akin to sort of a toy-like strategy. You wouldn't go to a toy shop and buy everything from Barbie in one big box. You buy them piecemeal. You buy one piece and then the other. But they're all sort of part of the, the Barbie family, if you will. So that was a effect that we wanted to explore different play patterns, and we wanted to do that under this this uh, you know digital toy brand Toka Boka. Um, the other thing was a strictly a business issue, as like at the time, and of course this I'm, I'm dating myself here, but I mean there was no subscriptions in the app store, so that was another issue. So so the the reason why everybody's choosing multi, sort of putting all the apps into one right now is that the the platforms are primarily pushing you to do subscription. Uh, and then to do subscription, you need a lot of content, and then it sort of makes sense to pool everything into one place. And I think had we started it now, then maybe it would have been a different situation. But at the time, subscription was not available. Um, so that meant you need to sell them individually. Uh, and then also sort of having multiple apps out at the same time seemed to be sort of a, a sensical way of doing it at the time. Um, and also, 
as I was mentioning in the beginning, you have longevity. So, and, and that is still true to this day. Like the first app we ever published, Toka Tea Party in 2011, it's still selling. It is untouched basically. But I mean, over, more than 10 years later, that app is still selling and still doing well in the store because it's still fun to have a tea party on an iPad. That is still fun. And the three and four and five-year-olds that have had fun with it then, they've grown up, but their siblings are now playing the same thing. So, yeah. so from that perspective, having everything in one place didn't really make any sense. It, it made sense to sort of have like, this is a good fit for you who likes this way of playing. But if you don't like that, then you can choose something completely different without leaving sort of the family and the brand family. Right. Um, and what's interesting to me is that, you know, kind of despite taking that app by app approach, you still managed to pull off like a really strong, you know, central brand around um, Tokoboko with consumers. Um, I'd like to, to hear you talk about that a little bit. How did you go about like thinking about brand building across all of this? Um, and obviously these games, these digital toys were one key part, but I also know the the ecosystem has grown over time and, and, and done different things too. But in general, how did you, how did you really think about making the brand what it became? Yeah, it was very deliberate. Like it was a plan from the beginning, super deliberate. We filed our first trademarks before we submitted our first app. <laughs> you know, so like it was, it was a very clear intentional strategy it's like we need to get this right now we didn't know how well we would do but at least that was the plan um and it was a number of things and we we i think for a lot of gaming and movies and things you know you have the, the something something production in association with something something else and it's you, the feeling as a consumer when you're watching is just like get on with it you know i don't i don't care who financed this movie just just get on with it and then you have things that do it in the completely different way which is, you know, the Pixar thing. It's a bit fun. You know, it, 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 you know this lamp is jumping. It's at least a little bit of humor. And then we have the far extreme of them that do, does it really well, uh, which is like The Simpsons. And that's where we borrowed sort of the uh, one of our ideas from. Because The Simpsons intro, which is essentially part of The Simpsons branding, if you will, um, you want to watch that. Because it's always different, you know. What what is yep. Bart going to be writing on the board? What is Lisa going to be playing something on the sax? The last scene when they all sit on the couch. What's going to happen? It's a part of the content. You want to have. You don't want to. You don't want to skip intro on The Simpsons because it's part of the show, um, which is more again very unusual. So we're thinking like, okay, what's the kids' equivalent of this? So we thought we'll have like an intro animation. Uh, and we'll have we won't have the same sort of just splashing. We'll make a we'll make a, a unique animation for every single app that's sort of themed, be a little bit funny, and we'll have this sonic uh, sound uh, logo as well, which, it, which says it in a specific specific way. And that would be something that kids would over time, not the first time because you wouldn't know that it's there, but over time after using it, you'd like, I wonder what they did this time. Be something that you you want to you want to look at it. You want to know. You know it's going to say Tokoboka at the end, but you're not quite sure how it's going to be there. So that was that was one thing, like working with Sonics, working with intra animations, things like that. Other things that we thought was just is the choice of aesthetics, um, for instance. So I'd say the style was sort of somewhere between Scandinavia meets Japan, somewhere sort of in that in that middle there. And something that we talked about a lot was like we can't we can't out Disney Disney. You know, whatever Disney is doing, strategy-wise, conceptually, anything really, there's no realistic way that we are going to be able to take them on with whatever they're doing. 
which means we need to do the opposite in some ways. So, so even the choice of aesthetics is very non-traditional and very non-Disney-esque in that mm. way and saying like, we need to find something which looks completely different and has a very different sort of tone of voice um, graphically uh, and otherwise, just so that we don't come off as, you know, here's Disney with less resources, essentially, which, which is a huge risk. And I think a lot of products fall into that category. It's just like you're a you're, a, you're an under-resourced carbon copy of the, what's a, what the original is. And we're uh, the brand strategy had to be, we had to be perceived as something completely different, which mm. means we might not be for everyone and we'll have to live with that, but at least it's deliberate. Um, and there's no way of picking up a Tokaboka app without getting the feeling as like, oh yeah, I, I, I recognize this. And this, this looks familiar. This has a certain aesthetic and things. So... I mean, brand building is something you do every day, you know, in a way. Um, but at least, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd spend time on this early on to just make sure that we'd, we'd kind of get it right. Uh, and then it's just been continuous work, product and marketing-wise, uh, since then. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how that translated to how you think about user acquisition um, or just what you learned in general about user acquisition when it comes to the kids' market side of things. How do you... How do you, um, you know, scale the kids you have because they're not the the ones with the money, right? The parents are. Um, so, you know, to what degree are you targeting the kids versus the parents? How does that all come together under the Toka Boca brand? Yeah, it's um, it's a tricky thing. Um, the brand is an advantage. So this was a long term play that we weren't sure if this is going to work out. But all all the apps are called Toka something as a prefix, Toka Doctor, Toka Store, Toka Life, and, and so forth. Um, that means, of course, we knew, um, you know, we could hope maybe that people would be discussing like, oh, you know, uh, Toka Cars is coming next Saturday. That'll be amazing. Um, but that's an unlikely topic of discussion in, in, in regular families' households. Like, they're not going to know what the next app coming out is like. We, we weren't that well known. Um, so instead we thought, well, they might remember the brand. So at least they might search for Toka Boca and then they don't know what they're going to find, but they'll get a long list of all the products that we have and they'll choose something. Again, akin toy with the toy reference, like going to the specific aisle, going to the Lego aisle. You don't know exactly which box you're going to be buying in the store, but you go to the Lego aisle because you know it's a safe bet. That's what we were trying to create. And that helped in user acquisition as well. It's sort of, okay. I don't know exactly what I'm going to be downloading, but Toka Boca is normally good. Uh, and as long as we'd earned that position of trust, again, long-term play, but once you earn that position of trust, you search Toka Boca just like you go to the Lego aisle and then you pick something up depending on what you like. Um, as we go, the other part of the question is sort of like, well, how do you handle the, the kids and the, and the adults? This was tricky and we messed this up uh, on a few occasions as well. I think the... You know, now these days I work as an, as an advisor for these sorts of questions and sort of family tech and things like that. The most common thing, a sort of pitfall that you, you fall into, and I know this because I was in it. <laughs> I did it. I didn't make that mistake myself. Is you try to do it for both. You start saying like, well, we'd like to make this product. We'd like really both adults and kids to, to really sort of appreciate this product. And that is not realistic. Um, something has to give. You can make great products for children that are aimed and sold to adults. That is primarily educational products. Uh, I want my kids to learn how to speak Mandarin. I want them to get a head start in school, these sorts of things. They could be game-like experiences, 
But there's no three-year-old that's saying like, I wish I could be better at my, my, you know, algebra at the moment. Like no kid has said that. That might be what they're ending up doing, but that's because their parents are, you know, forcing or mildly suggesting, (laughs) depending on the level of of, uh, authoritarianism at home. Um, But then on the other end of things, you have products that are just for kids that you'd say, well, parents hate this. This is never going to happen. But every parent knows there are things in your uh, your uh, house or your kids room that you wonder how on earth did this end up here how who bought this why why do i have this i hate this but still my kid loves it so the the, the interests are not they they they're not overlapping like it's a, like a venn diagram and 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 then the, the but the middle part is very very small you would think that you can sell to votes and that's where we were too we had we had social channels um, we had uh, Facebook and Twitter that was talking strictly to parents. And then we had uh, Instagram and YouTube that was talking strictly to kids. And at some point, we had to put our foot down and say, you know what, we're going to go strictly for the kids. We're going to say like, okay, the, the parents then have to, they can't hate it. That would be bad. Uh, the kids have to love it. But the parents, they can't hate it. They can like it or they can accept it. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But we're siding with the kids. We're, t- we're saying like we're, if, if there's, if there's an issue where you could go kids or you could go parents, we'll always go kids. Um, and once we did that, that started to help because it created sort of clarity in communication and created clarity in, in, in sometimes simple things like product design. I'll give you an example. Like in, in Toka Life, World Woods is the most successful product currently. Um, and we had the Toka Life series when I was uh, CEO too. You know, at some point, you can, you can flush things down the toilet. You can take an object. This is like a dollhouse app, and you can flush things down the toilet. Something that kids find hilarious. I believe you can flush a cat down the toilet as well, which seems, from a parent perspective, like this is very inappropriate. No parent would suggest like don't don't flush a cat down the toilet. That seems like a bad idea. But if you're five years old, or if you're eight years old, or ten, this is hilarious. It's you the know, best and, finger, and yeah. the cat comes up again. And, you know, nothing happens. It's nothing gory or anything like that. It's just funny. Like I can flush the cat down the toilet, and it's you know tiny little decisions like that. It's like should we have this? Is this too much? And then like kids would love it. Kids would love it. The parents maybe would not suggest it. And 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 if you take the parents' point of view, it's like what would I like my kids to do? It is a very different story than what the kids themselves say that they want to do. So that 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 I'd say is sort of marketing and, and so getting it right in between you got to choose uh you, you can work on both ends but it's very hard to make it work in the middle mm-hmm. how did you figure out what kids wanted um did you have play tests you know systems around that 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 guided your decision before launching or how did you how did you think about like nailing it for the the kids it was it was a lot of play testing and you know with a team that did it very very well and was very empathetic and very sort of open and and that in itself was a fine art to just try to get like how do you test with kids um because you know adults are in some sense easier and in some sense much harder to 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 interview and get a good you know any anyone who's run a focus group knows that you know like would you buy this like yeah i, I probably would you know <laughs> because they also want to please to a certain extent you know you like the idea of it that doesn't mean that that's corresponding with your actual behavior once you're sort of out of the market kids in a sense if you can sort of corner them correctly so to speak are very honest you know if they don't like the app that you're showing they'll just leave They'll just leave the tests, you know, at least younger kids. They'll just go away and play with something else. <laughs> That's a very, very obvious, like, okay, we don't know exactly what's wrong, but we know that something is wrong. Um, so, so the honesty is there. 
So there were other things, you know, that you need to think about. Like if the kids become apprehensive, like we, we normally went to them. Like it was tricky for them to come to us because then it was a, they're in our office. It was very colorful. There was a lot going on. And then they become, you know, a little bit more worried and concerned. You need to get them in a relaxed zone. We try to film as much and just sort of see what are they doing? What are they getting stuck on? Trying to film someone over, over their shoulder with an iPhone, just seeing what, what's happening is like, oh, they're swiping in a way that so they're actually like swiping out of the app because we've designed it in, in an incorrect way so that when you think you're swiping in the game, you're actually multitasking and sort of going from one app to another. Right, then we need to change that navigation mechanic. Or things that happen with smaller children, they put their hand on the iPad on top of it, and then they use the other hand to try to place an object. The iPad is interpreting the first hand, which is just lying there, as all the touch points, <laughs> and then nothing works. Things like this, like that doesn't happen with adults, because why would you lay your whole hand on an iPad and then use your, like, no, an adult wouldn't do that, but kids do this all the time. Very, very difficult to, to you know, guess until you see it. And when you see it, it's like, okay, I get it. Like, you know, you, you immediately figure out what the problem is. So I think playtesting is the only way, even with very skilled professionals that we had, that were experienced of working with this, I'd say like their their main skill was not like thinking like a child, but actually managing to get that info out of it. Like this is a, this this is a reasonable hypothesis enough to test. Go to the kids, test it, and be able to interpret those results, and then take it back and redo something. That that's where sort of the professionalism comes in. Hmm. Could you talk a bit about the challenges that you faced in building out Tokoboka, or just even the challenges that you learned about serving kids? Um, how you overcame them, how you, and maybe how you overcame them in a way that other teams, other companies out there weren't able to figure out. I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge I'd say was, was our business model. We, we had, we had huge, you know, when we started the market, we looked at the market. I thought my, my first assessment was completely incorrect. I thought it's too late. This is in 2010. <laughs> like the market is over. We've trains already left the station. There's no point doing this. And then, you know, we gradually sort of revised that a little bit and thought, you know what, there might be something here. Um, and then it started to sort of move. And then I realized, okay, the market has not even started yet. It hasn't ended. We haven't even begun yet. So the first years we had huge tailwinds and, and it was growing fast and it was growing well because the market was growing. And then a few years down the line, that stopped happening. And, you know, and, and, and in some way, when you're growing, you you become a little complacent with other things. You're not necessarily questioning, uh, in our case, maybe our business model fully. We're thinking like, well, everything is doing fine because we're growing. So so how bad can it be? And then suddenly when, when the tailwind ends, you realize, you know what? This is not as easy as it once was. So, so we were sort of peddling water a little bit for a while, trying to figure out how are we going to stay in our business model, which at the time was paid apps, paid apps up front. And the reason for this also was that there had been a history of quite deceptive business practices from, from uh, certain game makers um, that just try to sell a lot of in-app purchase, you know, virtual currency to, to young kids. Um, but I mean, it, even if you look at sort of the iOS system and the Android system, they didn't really have a lot of safeguards at that time. But over the course of those years, those safeguards had actually come into place. And like, it wasn't as easy to spend $500 on Smurf berries as it once was, because there were actually sort of technical safeguards in place. 
So the very thing that we were trying to distance ourselves from and avoid, in a sense, wasn't really relevant anymore. And I think that it took us too long um, to, 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 to realize that. And I think that that was something that changed the end of sort of 2017, somewhere there. Uh, it changed and, and was also that, which is since I after my time, uh, after I, I left, has also turned the, the revenues explosive um, because now they move to this sort of expansion pack lever model, basically, where you're, you, can, you can buy more packs in the same product. Mm-hmm. And that has just uh, been hugely, hugely successful. Um, in retrospect, we probably should have done that earlier. I think we were overly cautious um, with problems that maybe weren't really there. And I think we're a little bit spoiled. We were spoiled for a business model that had served us quite well that we didn't really bother to maybe question it to the same extent that we should have. Interesting. And that might be a good segue um, to discuss um, the acquisition by um, Spin Master, which is a, a large multi-pronged entertainment company for kids. Um, they acquired Tokoboka in 2016. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear from you what you learned from that acquisition process, integrating with a larger company, um, and maybe if you want to talk a bit more about, um, you know, what you learned and how things changed from from them starting to operate it, that would be great too. Yeah, it was a it was a very long process. Um, as as mentioned, we were part of this this media company, and, and we were a bit of an odd fish, you know. Like if if you run book publishing for two hundred years, suddenly having you know, if you publish Swedish and Finnish poetry on one hand, and then you go into have this international gaming company or, or digital toy company, which was the biggest in the US, the overlap is pretty small. And um, so, so they decided that they were not going to be a good owner. So they, they thought, okay, we should, we should sell this, which we, we should take this somewhere else. So we did that. And the whole process took about one and a half years to sell. Um, and it was a lot of learnings here. I messed this up in many ways. Um, I think the biggest learning was uh, know your acquirer um, before you need them. Um, I hadn't really spent any time. I'd spent a lot of time with other kids' app makers, you know, my peers, if you will, in the industry, because it's interesting. They hear, you know, it's a little bit of gossip. There's also sort of marketing techniques and things that you can discuss sort of in a collegial manner. I had not spent a lot of time thinking who would be buying this company. Um, because if I had, then I would have had a lot, much, much easier time explaining the success that we actually had. Like we've built a brand on mobile in this category, which is exceedingly difficult to do and that so few have done. But if you've never thought about that, then then also your the accomplishment is somewhat diminished because that, well, well, okay, if you say it's hard, but I, I don't know, I, you know, because these people had never really thought about it. So we went to all the large entertainment companies, as you can imagine, and they'd almost never heard of us because we were too small. We were a subset of a subset of an industry for them. And they had, they had primary businesses, all of them, that they thought about all the time. And this was just a tiny little fringe thing. So I had to start from the very, very, very beginning to explain, okay, this is the kids at market and this is how people buy and this is how much they pay. You know, it was a very long road. So in order to get from, I've never heard of this to, yes, I think we should buy this for a lot of money and integrate it into our company. That is a long road. Um, And if I would have done this again, I would have thought about that much earlier and say, look, I should form some relationships. They should know me before. Whether this ever leads to any partnership, any acquisition or anything, know your acquirer. 
whether whether you you're in, ever intending to sell or not, uh, that probably could have cut down this process with at least half, if not three quarters. Oh, wow. um, so, but Spin Master saw it. So, so once on the inside, it was. I'd say it was relatively simple. They're quite entrepreneurial. Uh, you know, this is a publicly traded can, uh, company in Toronto. So obviously there was processes in place that were different, but they're very entrepreneurial. The people who, who, who started it were still running it. Um, so I wouldn't say that was so painful, but the process of selling it was incredibly painful and not something that I would look forward to doing again <laughs> if I could avoid it. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice in there. Um, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, maybe to to zoom things out a little bit more. Um, I'm curious. Um, you you said towards the beginning of the conversation that you know a kid ten years ago compared to one today, it's really not all that different in their expectations. Um, but at the same time, the the market around digital devices. Um, in the ecosystems has changed quite a bit. And so I imagine that, you know, even if kids' expectations have, you know, somewhat been the same, like how you have to think about serving them and where they are, um, some of those pieces um, have have evolved quite a bit and I imagine have led to even some, some newer opportunities popping up. So I, I'd like to get your take on maybe compared to, you know, five to 10 years ago, where are the opportunities now that didn't exist before? Like, like, what are you seeing out there that excites you in this market? Um, I mean, there's it's kind of it's ebb and flow. I think in this market, whether you know, if there's if there's investment and hunger, and then suddenly there's a lot of interesting things, and in other cases, it sort of it pans floats away in, and maybe not not so interesting for certain periods of time. Um, I think. Obviously, what we're seeing is a lot around video. There's just business models around video that you didn't have before. And, you know, YouTube becoming sort of an infrastructure and a phenomenon. And I think people are building sort of on the back of the, let's call it the literacy, the video literacy that children have. They're so used to this format that you can now build other verticals, if you will, um, that, that are taking on the same sort of behavior, same sort of tonality, but putting it in a different context. Um, I'm an investor in a company called Tappity, for instance, which is sort of the largest deposit, uh, repository of educational video. So like they could have put it on YouTube, but they're building sort of a vertical with educational video, which is sort of designed for kids that are coming out of YouTube in a sense. Like they know that, they know how that works. They're used to, they're used to consuming that format, but this is in a specific niche and it's around certain topics. And I think that, that video macro is very, very strong. And now it's something that you take completely for granted. We saw it. We tried to build a video product. We failed uh, spectacularly with with this. I think the the trend that we saw was correct, but the way in which we did it was wrong. And I think we're seeing a few examples of them that's doing doing that more well now. Um, I guess the next sort of realm could be sort of generative AI things for creativity. I suppose that could be pretty fun. What happens if you put these sorts of tools in the hands of children? Tokoboka often talked about the idea of like, how do you give children superpowers? How can they do things that they th- that they thought oh, that they yeah. could not do? Yeah, yeah. That to me is a good match in the sense is like, what could you, they don't think that they could do these sorts of things, you know, but by just by speaking and saying, I want to see, you know, a lion in the top hat in a speedboat um, having a cup of tea, and then it creates that for you. That's quite possible now, but that certainly was not possible just a few years ago, or, or at the very least was not 
certainly not available for children, but arguably not available to the general public. So I haven't seen that, but that at least to me is fun and sort of plays to using kids' imagination to something interesting and, and giving them some superpowers. Yeah, I'm definitely bullish on that too, I think. I mean, we've seen with Roblox, obviously, in and of itself, um, just the power of UGC um, and how that has primarily been a kid-first audience and has grown from there, which is really interesting. I don't. Yes. I feel like that's a tip, not typical, but yeah, merging UGC with, I guess, more, um, I guess you could call it AI, but really like whatever makes it easier and more exciting to get those superpowers um, for kids. Yeah. Um, yeah, if I were a kid, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be stoked about that. Um, <laughs> I, I might be stoked about that now. Let's be real. Um, um, I guess before I want to spend kind of the final leg of our conversation, just talking about like your current interests and, you know, advice. Um, but maybe to kind of segue the, the two, um, before we, we move on to those final thoughts, what, what final advice would you have for founders and teams who want to tackle the kids market today? Hmm. I mean, if you're making products for kids, you need to spend time with kids um, and, and, and not assume that you can think like them. Um, so, so I think that, that's, the, that's the first thing. I think sort of, yeah, deciding whether it is genuinely kids or, or whether it's parents and, and doing that work. Um, and then I think like, there needs to be a plan for a longer game. This is not a quick win. Like these things will not naturally go viral uh, for privacy reasons and things of the like, they don't have a contact book and they're not going to upload it to your server and they're not going to be able to send invites. And if they do, that'll be the last thing you'll ever do on that person's iPad. So a lot of these traditional mechanics that you would use in, in regular sort of viral loops and things are not accessible, which means that you need to, you need to have a plan for like, okay, if we can't access that, then what are we doing instead? And, and how, do, how do we plan for that longevity? This will pay off over the long term. As said before, like products that you make now could serve you very, very well for a long period of time, um, which is more than could be said for sort of flavor of the month and social apps that come and go. But on the other hand, you need to make it that far. Uh, so that's the challenge and that's the plan that needs to be done before you sort of head into this. That's my advice. I'd say plan, plan for the long term. And if you don't have a realistic plan for that, reconsider because this is not going to be a fast and quick win. Right. Well said. So let's go ahead and talk about um, the, you know, zoom to the present and talk a bit about what's on your mind today. And so maybe just to, to kick that off, what are you working on these days? Um, I work on a number of boards. Uh, one is a gaming company. I'm on the board of Rovio, which is the company behind Angry Birds. I am on the board of Acast, which is a podcasting company, for instance. So these are things that I'm interested in podcasting, very obviously uh, interesting to me. Um, so, so there's this, and then, you know, writing, uh, I'm a technology analyst. So like, I'm curious, I read a lot of newsletters and just sort of, I, li I like to do, uh, keep my eye on what these things are, you know, things that are happening in the market, try to describe that as well. So yeah, a number of things. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's probably the things that I'm spending the most time on. Okay, great. Um, and on your, your website, you have written a few areas of interest. And I want to get your take on at least one or two of these, um, perhaps, you know, more as it relates to gaming. Um, one, you call out um, taste as a counter trend to AI. Um, you know, right now, we're obviously seeing an explosion of progress in text to image and now text to video 
AI that will likely make its way into how games are made too. And, and we just talked about how it could be interesting from, you know, giving kids superpowers and, you know, digital toy experiences as well. Um, yeah. so, so my question to you is, um, where could taste in the digital world, um, especially around gaming, stand out over AI in the future? I mean, for, for me, this is sort of, you know, I'm interested in art, you know, like I, I'm, an, I'm an art buff. I think this is interesting. And, and a lot of art, even AI generated art, you know, if, if you want to, want to go to that, that end of the, of the market as well, is, is tricky to me um, because a lot of it comes down to taste. It, it comes down to like, it's, what, is, was it, what is this trying to tell me? What is it telling me? What am, not only what is the painting bringing to me, what am I bringing to the painting <laughs> or to the installation or to, you know, to the performance, whatever it is. A lot of that is so intangible. I find it tricky to think that that AI necessarily is going to pick these things up because it's so difficult to explain what this is. Uh, fashion is a great example. You know, you put together a, sort of a certain outfit. You could you can load up the AI and say, you know, like you never wear brown shoes after six and you always wear a something, something on your lapel and blah, blah, blah. And then you see someone who breaks that, but they do it in a certain way. And for them, it looks fantastic. There's like, they are wearing brown shoes and you shouldn't, but my God, this... That guy can really put it, pull it, pull it off. And then you see someone who has the wrong brown shoes and it looks terrible. Um, and the answer is it's the taste in between. They are both technically wearing the same thing from a sort of computer vision perspective, blue suit, brown shoes, like it's the same thing, but it's the taste that does that. It's not there. So to me, what's, what's interesting and what I, what I'm fascinated about is like, what are those areas that, that taste could do better? Than AI, because I'm convinced that AI is, is going to do a lot of things way, way better, faster, cheaper, all of these sorts of things. But what are the areas where it's not? Uh, art is probably one of them. And, you know, style and, and maybe sort of in the gaming context, like aesthetics and choice of this is like you could generate a lot of a computer art, but will it be with the uh, you know what the Germans called Fingerspitzgefühl, uh, or the sort of the, the which is the feeling at the tip of your fingers, like the the precision, the level of detail, the elegance. Would would you get the same thing from them as you would from an artist which just has a very good eye? Um, so that to me, that's one of those areas um, that just makes me curious. It's like basic, not not every, if everybody's thinking, what will AI take over? My, I'm more interested in the opposite. What would be really hard for AI to actually do? And where does that leave us? What do we do with that then if AI can't do it? That's more interesting to me. Cool. Um, one more I'll throw at you. Um, you say um, competing for consumers or talent by breaking common convention. And you give examples like a four-day work week or decreasing prices, whereas I guess many companies would want to raise prices. Um, if you were a founder, Gantt, Again, what ideas that break common convention would you be most interested in implementing into your company today? Um, yeah, I'm actually working with a project which is trying to sort of live along the lines of these, um, these sorts of ideas. And it's more sort of maybe challenging how companies are created and run and sort of working with a finite constraint. Whereas like normally you'd say, well, you know, work 40 hours, even better work 80 hours that, you know, they, it'll go faster and it'll be better. In this case, I'm sort of working with a project together with a friend of mine and we're thinking, what happens if we only have 10 hours to spare? Like, you know, if that is the constraint, how would you design a company and how would you design your operations and all of these things if there's a finite constraint in time? 
and also you know you could have finite constraint in, in budget or any of those things what happens then what are some things that you need to sort of reassess and and it's quite refreshing actually it's quite refreshing because suddenly the idea of of you know growing into like multiple product teams and 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 like okay so you went from one product team to three to five to ten and then suddenly you have someone who's like this is the product team that's responsible for the record button that's the only thing that they're working on you know and it almost ends up being absurd as like yes you could grow in that way but maybe that's not really necessary and maybe you don't want to um, if you start with a huge amount of constraints, suddenly you need to question everything about running these things. And, and I don't, I'm not sure, you know, time will tell whether the outcome will be um, will be anything worth having or not. But that at least is interesting to me. I feel like there's a startup formula that people follow a little bit blindly. This is how one does it. This is how you scale. And you read the same blog posts on Hacker News and all of these things. It's always the same thing. To me, it's interesting to think about, well, what if we didn't do that? And what if we started with maybe arbitrary and artificial constraints? Well, where does that, where, where does that leave us? And that's, uh, that's, yeah, I'm very curious about that. I think that's an interesting trend. Yeah, that, that is interesting. It piqued my mind, too, just as a, a founder with, you know, naturally with constraints. And, you know, every day you're thinking about how you can better operate within them and not just to to scale a business by just doing more and more or more time, throwing more resources, but how to do um, more with there's less, also a working between, smarter. Yeah, there's a difference between overcoming constraints or just accepting them. Because I think a lot of startup culture and sort of hustle porn is just, is just like, get over it, you know, like work in a different way, get up earlier, you know, do the meditation and all of these sorts of things. It's like, well, or you could just accept it. You just accept that this is the limitation. And, and so if we have accepted it, what's then the result given that? Not assuming that it has to follow this set pattern. So that, that's also a different sort of philosophical view of, of how to go about it. Right. Um, one last question, and then we can go ahead and, and wrap up. Um, and this is also you know somewhat selfish founder question, but I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs that, that listen to this show too. Um, I know you serve on several boards, including, including Rovio, which we called out. Um, what is your advice for to, to founders on how to build successful and effective boards? I'm curious what you've learned, um, both from your own companies and from serving on other boards, if there are any one or two pieces of advice that really stand yeah. out above the rest for you. I, it's almost easiest to answer it in the opposite way. What, what makes it not work? Um, and it, and it, it, is a, it is a lack of trust. Um, you know, I think a lot of founders fall into sort of, I can't, I can't bring a question to the board. I need to bring the solution, you know, um, and that, you know, there's some boards that operate in that way. But I think when I've seen boards work the best, it's more sort of, this is an extension of the management team. It's like, okay, maybe you need to come, you need to come with a problem. You need to come with maybe a hypothesis. You can think about it like this, but like, you're open in, 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 in describing to the board that I don't know the answer to this. This is what I'm thinking, but I'm not entirely sure. And then you can sort of collectively try to work, figure out the problem together. It brings trust because the, the level of certainty that I think a lot of, especially early young founders, think that they need to have to the board, an experienced board knows there's no way you know this. Experienced board members will call this out immediately. Like, there's no chance in hell that you know how this is going to go, even if you present it in that way. So, a more sort of trust building 
approach to this would be like, you know what, I don't know. This is what I'm intending to do. And if you have any thoughts on it, let me know. But this is what my plan is. You don't want to be clueless. But 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 being a little bit more humble, I've found has built so much more trust between management and board. And once that trust is there, so much easier, it actually serves you know, as the support function that you as a CEO, you know, you might not need it when it goes well, but when it stops going well, you do need it. And then it can be quite nice to have a board to go to. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's really great advice. And and thanks for um, being willing to answer my really scattershot questions at the end. But it's fun to kind of bounce around with, with some of these some of these topics. Um, very much so. I guess very, very lastly for you, Bjorn, um, for anyone who's um, who is interested in this conversation and wants to follow along and continue learning from you, where can they find you? Um, follow me on Twitter at Bjorn Jeffrey. Very simple. Sometimes I tweet in Swedish. Please apologize, uh, apologies in advance for that, but it's still, it's still worth it. There's enough in English for, to hang around. Awesome. Um, well, really, uh, Bjorn, thank you again for, for joining me today. I had a great time learning more about the kids market, about your um, you know, experiences with Tokaboka and how you engineered success there, as well as what you're thinking about today. This was a lot of fun. Likewise, thanks for having me on. Yeah, and to all of our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to give us a like, subscribe, five stars. It would mean a lot. We'll put the links to all things Bjorn in the episode description below. And of course, if you want to check out Novix free newsletter and premium research, links to all of that are below as well. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time.